Turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter number 2 tonight. Man, what a blessing to be in the house of the Lord. I'm thrilled that you're here tonight. And um, I think about all the times we could have not had church and have church and how the Lord blesses me and encourages me when we do. And uh, now that ain't a criticism of anything. I'm just saying I'm thankful to be here tonight. Amen. I'm glad to be in God's house and, and enjoying getting to be here with you tonight. And No place I'd rather be. Amen. Looking forward to what God will do in our hearts and lives. Exodus chapter number 2. And I'll admit to you this is not a continuation in the message, but certainly in the reading of the biblical text. We're picking up tonight right where we left off this morning. And I would remind you before we read our text that uh, the time of Pharaoh's secrecy and his destruction of the uh, males uh, that are born of the Hebrews is past. And he is now just openly calling for the genocide of these uh, little children. And the Bible tells us in Exodus chapter 2, verse number 1, read with me and notice what the word of God says. There went a man of the house of Levi and took to wife a daughter of Levi. And the woman conceived and bare a son. And when she saw him that he was a goodly child, she hid him three months. And when she, when she could no longer hide him, she took for him an ark of bulrushes and daubed it with slime and with pitch and put the child therein and laid it in the flags by the river's brink. And his sister stood afar off to wit what would be done to him. And the daughter of Pharaoh came down to wash herself at the river, and her maidens walked along by the river's side. And when she saw the ark among the flags, she sent her maid to fetch it. And when she had opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the babe wept. And she had compassion on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then said his sister to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call to thee a nurse of the Hebrew women, that she may nurse the child for thee? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. And the maid went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said unto her, Take this child away and nurse it for me, and I will give thee thy wages. And the woman took the child and nursed it. And the child grew, and she brought him unto Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. And she called his name Moses. And she said, because I drew him out of the water. Let's stop there and pray. Father, we love you tonight. Thank you for letting us be here in the house of God. I pray that you'd take your word and use it. Lord, take your sword and wield it deftly in our hearts and in our minds. And Lord, may we be receptive and attentive to the truth of your word as it's preached unto us. Lord, may we be submissive unto you. May we allow you to work in our hearts and in our minds in such a way that would bring you glory and would make us more like Jesus Christ. And, oh, Lord, we thank you for Jesus Christ. Uh, we, we couldn't ask for a better Savior. Lord, mine uh, couldn't even fathom uh, what could be a better Savior. Lord, he's precious. Uh, Lord, he's proprietary. Uh, he's singular. Lord, there's none like him. And I'm just so thankful that he's my Savior tonight. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for what you've done for us. And thank you for what you will do tonight. Lord, we love you. And we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Tonight I want us to take a moment and look at this woman, this mother, whose name, not given in our text here, but elsewhere in the book of Exodus, the mother of Moses, whose name is Jochebed. We read about this woman, the birth of her son Moses, and her commitment and resolve to trust God in the midst of a time of great danger and a time of great affliction. I began when I read this passage to think about motherhood and 
how the world looks at being a mother and at parenthood in general. And I sort of hinted at this this morning, but, I, you know, I would make three statements about the world's attitude towards having children. I'd say, number one tonight, the world views parenting as a weight. In other words, views it as an inconvenience. Views it as merely something that cramps your style and something that causes problems and something that prevents and hinders you from going out and having any fun. But it's more than that. Somebody say amen to that. (laughs) I I remember one time hearing somebody talk about having children and uh, how everything changes when you have kids. I found this to be true in my life. You don't just go and get in the car and go places anymore. It's an entire production. Amen. And uh, by the time that we'll have the freedom to go places, we probably won't have the inclination to anymore. Amen. And so the world just views it as being an inconvenience, an impediment, just a weight, just something that is dragging down your life. And then I'd say, number two, that the world views children as a weapon, as a resource that can be taken and turned to its advantage and to its strength. I think that's one of the most grievous things about the modern day society that we live in is the weaponization of the young generation, uh, the rotting and corrupting of their mind and of their worldview in such way that they might just simply be uh, devalued and denigrated into just being a, a foot soldier in an ideological war. Uh, it's one of the reasons, and boy, I, I've got a message to preach, so I ain't got time to get into all this, but uh, listen, that's one of the reasons the best thing you can do is biblically educate your child. Teach them the Bible. Uh, teach them how to have a biblical worldview. You're not going to stop the world from trying to influence them, but you can make sure that before the world ever gets to them, you've already got to them and influenced them. And, you know, the world, it views children as a weapon. And then I would say this, the world views motherhood as a weakness. You watch any daytime television show and they will line up an entire series of professionals and uh, highly educated individuals and they will parade uh, the uh, seeming fulfillment that they have derived from those pursuits. And there's always this implicit unspoken thing that if all you are is a wife and a mother, well, bless your heart, you didn't do any better than that. And i got news for you, that's completely opposite to the biblical worldview. In fact, one of the highest and holiest things that a woman can be in life is a wife and a mother. It's no small thing. It's no mean thing. It's no insignificant thing. And when we come to this woman named Jochebed, we find in her that she was not someone that was weak, but rather she is a picture of strength through her motherhood. I want to preach to you on this thought tonight, mighty in motherhood. Jochebed was not somebody who was stuffed in a corner, insignificant and unimportant. But in fact, the choices that she makes in this passage will literally shake the world at its very foundations. We find that as opposed to being somebody that has uh, been relegated to, to irrelevance in the world, that in fact, she is exercising and wielding a power that far outstrips that of monarchs and emperors and kings. She is literally shaping the future of the world by shaping the heart and mind of her child. I'll tell you this tonight. Hey, listen, one of the greatest things you can do, one of the strongest things you can do, one of the mightiest things you can do is to raise your children up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord and to teach them how to be a godly individual. I saw one of my friends made a comment over this past week just observing, no doubt many preachers have on their mind, Proverbs 31, 
this week and thinking about the qualities of a virtuous woman. Did you know that, that word virtuous that's used in Proverbs 31? It's got presented, translated to us in a myriad of different ways in your King James Bible. There are times that it's presented to us as the word strength. Times that it's presented to us as the word power. Times that it's presented to us as the word army or host. And times that it's presented to us as the word valor or valiant Men. In other words, whenever Solomon took pen in hand and wrote about a virtuous woman, he did not have in his mind someone that was too poorly educated or too lacking in talents or abilities to be able to do anything better in life. But rather, he saw women raising their children up in the Lord like an army marching forth unto war as a mighty force in this world. And I think about Jochebed. And I, I, you know, I would just say this about her and her mightiness. Through her motherhood, she developed a mighty leader. Moses would go on. It's interesting because Pharaoh at this time is the most powerful man in the world. And God, through Moses, embarrasses Pharaoh. Shows a power that is, is far greater than that which Pharaoh or his occultist magicians can tap into. Moses will go on to lead some two and a half million Israelites out of the land of Egypt and he will be the oracle of God to that generation. He'll be the prophet of God like unto whom the Lord Jesus would be compared in the New Testament. But whenever Jochebed first laid her eyes on him, he wasn't any of those things. He was just a bouncing little baby. But through her influence, short as it may have been, and through the providence of God, uh, Jochebed developed a mighty leader. Where would the world have been without Moses? And Moses wouldn't have been without Jochebed. I'd say this, she developed a mighty leader. Number two, she defeated a mighty army. It's interesting to think that she overthrew the, the societal oppression through the means of motherhood. Their oppressors were the Egyptians. An entire nation enslaved. And you say, well, preacher, we're living in a world today that's enslaved under the bondage of sin. We're living a world today where people's rights and liberties are being stripped away and destroyed and mocked and trampled upon. And what can we do about that? Do we write a letter? Do we sign a petition? Do we go to a march? I'll tell you what Jochebed did that changed the whole thing. She had a child and raised it up for the time that she had it in the nurture of the Lord. In other words, she literally overthrew the Egyptian army by simply being a mother and nothing else. You can read the story of how God would destroy the armies of Pharaoh in the midst of the Red Sea, how that he would drive the wheels off their chariots and leave them stranded in the midst of the waters, crashing in upon them. But none of that could have happened if Jochebed hadn't been willing to be a mother. She developed a mighty leader and she defeated a mighty army. But then I would say this, she delivered a mighty people. Every one of those, and you know, this this is a speculative number, admittedly so. The Bible doesn't give us an, a, a, a specific accounting of the number of individuals that left Egypt, but we, uh, best understanding as we have, would put that number around two to two and a half million individuals, all of whom owed their freedom to Jochebed. Had she not birthed Moses, and had she not trusted God with Moses, and had she not prayed for Moses... Two and a half million people would have still been in bondage. Many of them died of sickness and of abuse and of hate and of hostility. But because she was willing to raise a child for the glory of God. It's interesting, that name, Jochebed, you know what it means? It means Jehovah's glory. 
She viewed her life as being for the glory of God. She viewed the rearing of her children as being for the glory of God. She viewed the tending to her husband as being for the glory of God. And sure enough, God got glory out of every bit of it. There were untold numbers of people who owed their lives and their freedom to her willingness to be a mother and to raise up for what short period of time she had this little boy. You think about in our life, and I think about myself, the course of my life, and the people that God has used to touch it. One thing they all had in common is they all had a mama. You understand every emperor's had a mama. You understand every king's had a mama. You understand that, listen, every single tyrant and every single statesman, you understand that every single oppressor and every single deliverer had a mother, had someone who held them when they were no more than just a babe weeping in their arms as Moses is in this passage and chose to show love and affection or chose to show neglect and uh, maltreatment towards him. I'm telling you this, ladies, listen, there's no more mighty thing that you can do then engage. If it's the will of God and if it's the heart of God and if God's placed you in this situation, it's no low or mean thing to be a mother. It's a mighty thing. She literally shifted nations. She literally shook continents through her motherhood. She was not uh, meek and she was not insignificant and she was not irrelevant. But in fact, she might have for this point in time been one of the most important people walking the earth. And it was because... She was a godly mother. Now, how exactly in our passage do we see her exhibiting this mightiness through her motherhood? I want you to notice three thoughts tonight, and then we'll be done. Let me say number one. Look look at verse two with me. The Bible says this about her. The woman conceived and bare a son. And when she saw him, that he was a goodly child, she hid him three months. Let me say, number one tonight, that she was mighty through the potential that she saw in Moses. I love the phrase that your King James Bible uses there. When she saw him, when she looked upon him, when she saw him, she saw more than him. She saw what God could make him. You think about this moment in Israel's history, and you think about the agonizing decision There have always been times throughout human history in which a woman through means of herbs or through means of other uh, avenues could terminate a pregnancy if she had so chosen. And I will tell you this, no doubt it was an agonizing decision for her to make when she knew that there was a 50-50 chance that she'd have to take that baby and throw it into the river. And she could have chosen a coward's way out. She could have said, I can't face it. I can't bear the idea of it. I can't bear the thought of it. I'll not do my wifely duty. If I find myself with child, I'll find some way uh, to uh, rid myself and eradicate myself of that child. But she looked at life and the sanctity of it and saw what God could do through it. And in the face of no doubt crushing fear, she chose to have faith in God that God had a plan in all of it. I would say this, when she saw him, she saw him as worth bearing. The Bible says she conceived and she bare a son. She saw it as a precious and valuable thing. Again, we're living in a day when the bearing of children is looked at with sneers and cynicism. 
I mean, it's amazing to me, and I don't have a lot of children. I've got two, and uh, we, we've got one in heaven um, years ago that we never got to meet, and one day we're looking forward to that. And the Lord took him from us before we ever had him in our hands. But we've got two that are right here with us, and they feel like 20 sometimes, but I wasn't raised in a big home. I, it was me and, and my brother and my sister, and mom and dad kept having kids till they had a good one, and they had me, they was able to stop. So we didn't have a bunch of, we, we didn't, <laughs> you settle down over here, Kenny. See, like it's every Mother's Day, we need to do something about that. And uh, I was not raised in a, in a big family. Uh, but man, you want to be treated like you're some kind of weirdo alien done fell out of outer space. I have more than two kids. And society looks at you like, what do you think you're doing? I'll tell you, one of the greatest things we can do for our country is people that love and fear God have children. People that love and fear God raise up their children unto the Lord. Hey, listen, there's no replacement for that in society. And when we come to this passage, I think it's a courageous thing, and I think it's a noble thing simply that when she had the opportunity and choice to do otherwise, she saw value in the bearing of a child. She saw Moses not as a burden, but as a gift from God. Began with this desire, the entire passage couldn't proceed forth were it not for this desire. She saw him as worth bearing. But then the Bible says this, when she saw him that he was a goodly child. Now that's an interesting phrase, a goodly child. What's meant? Does it simply mean a a cute baby, an attractive baby? I've never known. I've been around a lot of uh, children uh, after they've been born and, you know, visiting in hospitals and things like that. I've never known a mama to uh, birth a child, look at it and say, is that baby a little ugly to you? And I've seen ugly babies. Somebody say amen to that. But I've never, I've never seen a mother say that about her own child. And so I don't believe it's merely that she is saying that he is a cute or an attractive baby because every mother feels that way about their child. Nor do I think that it's merely suggesting that the child was a healthy child. In fact, you look at this word and it denotes the idea of virtue. And I believe that she looked at Moses and she saw him not just as a goodly child, but as a godly child. You say, what do you mean, preacher? She looked at him and didn't just say this is a beautiful, healthy, bouncing baby boy, but she looked at him and I don't know if God just impressed it on her heart. I don't know if it was just her motherly optimism and faith, but she looked at this child and said, God has a plan for this baby. I would say this, she saw him not only as worth bearing, but as worth saving. She could have done like no doubt many other Hebrew women did and go down and cast her child into the river. And I I thought there's no doubt a parallel. Uh, She does wind up putting him in the river. Uh, But I'll tell you this. uh, Listen, there's other ways to accomplish what God wants. Uh, mm, I don't know if I'll get this said right. I don't know if I'll get this said right. There's what the Lord say or the world says they want for your child. But that's not accomplished through the world's system. But God has a means of accomplishing it through His system. You say, what do you mean, preacher? Well, the world says be successful, but the world doesn't know what success looks like. The world says be happy, but the world doesn't know what happiness looks like. The world says make your life count, but the world don't know what making your life count is all about. And it's interesting to me that Pharaoh's command was put him in the river. God's command was put him in the river, but God's way was an entirely different way than Moses' way was. Uh, I see in this passage, she she looked at him and she said, this child is worth endangering, imperiling my life, doing whatever it takes to protect 
and to watch over him. She saw him as worth saving, worth laboring. And then I would say this, the Bible tells us when she saw that, she hid him for three months. She saw him as worth guarding, worth guarding. You imagine the anxiety that she must have felt. She's taking care of this little infant. The Bible tells us later on in the book of Exodus when the children of Israel leave the land of uh, of Egypt that God commands them to uh, take, uh, you know, jewelry and gifts as loans from all of their neighbors that He would use this to enrich them as a people. That tells me this, the Israelites were living amongst the Egyptians. They weren't necessarily segregated off to a separate area of society, but they had Egyptian neighbors. You imagine the fear that must have gripped Amram and Jochebed as as day after day they just prayed that that baby would not cry at the wrong time and that the wrong ears would not hear him and that the wrong eyes would not see him. But they looked at it and said, God has a plan for him and it's our job to watch over him till he can fulfill the plan of God for his life. Every one of us that God has blessed with children, we are stewards. Stewards of one of the most precious valuable and powerful responsibilities that God ever entrusts to a person. We ought to view our life, our responsibility, as that of guarding our children. It's funny how the world has the means to change people's perspective. Over the past few generations, the idea is that it's the parent's job to expose their child to as much as is possible. That we need to, through education and through entertainment, We need to expose them to everything that we can possibly expose them to. This is completely opposite of the biblical worldview. Your job as a parent is not to expose them to as much as you can. It's to guard them from as much as you can. You say, well, preacher, how will they ever get along in this world if they're not eclectic? Well, I promise you the world will make sure they know all about its wickedness. I think about that prodigal son Uh, living there on the father's house with the father's servants and with his family and with his brother, but somehow he heard about the far country. Uh, They'll hear about the far country. What they need to hear about is the father's benevolence and faithfulness. And she looked at this child and she said, it may be hard, it may be difficult, it may be agonizing, it may be terrifying, but God has entrusted us with a child that He's going to raise up for His purpose and for His plan, and it is worth our time to guard this child. I think she was mighty through the potential that she saw in him. But then I would say, number two, I think she was mighty through the protection that she sought for. Look with me at verse number three. The Bible says, and when she could no longer hide him. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us how old he was, but my experience with children is about three months. Amen. You can't, after three months, you just can't stuff them in a dresser drawer and go take a nap anymore. They learn how to climb out. Amen. I don't know how old Moses was at this moment, uh, but was old enough that it was impossible to conceal him. This is what she did. The Bible says she took for him an ark of bulrushes, daubed it with slime and with pitch, and put the child therein, and she laid it in the flags by the river's brink. It's apparent to me that Jochebed did not anticipate her child dying when she did this. So how do you know that, preacher? Well, she wouldn't have stationed Moses' sister Miriam to stand there and to watch what would happen to the child. I don't know everything that Jochebed expected, but I do know that had she anticipated her child dying, she wouldn't have made him a little boat to float down the river in. She wouldn't have took the time to to seal it with slime and with pitch. She wouldn't have set a watch and a vigil over him. And I don't know all that she expected, but I do know this, she did everything she could to protect her child. 
How did she do that? I began to think about this means of, of doing this. The Bible says she took for him an ark of bulrushes. Now, we don't often use the terminology bulrushes, and we may not be familiar with what it's referring to in a botanical sense, but you know that that word bulrushes, it denotes a, a, a type of plant that we maybe are a little familiar with. We use this term today, papyrus. If you study ancient Egyptian culture, you'll find out that much of their wealth came through the development of papyrus. And papyrus, of course, was a, a, a type of, of reedy plant that when it was taken and processed and developed was used for writing on. And she took this, and this was customary at the time. Often the Egyptians would use it to make vessels and boats, small things that could navigate on rivers. And she took this papyrus and made a small boat and put her child in the papyrus. I began to think about the significance of that, what that could mean for you and I. And I think about, you know, at that time it wouldn't have been terribly uncommon. If it wasn't being written on animal skins, it would have been pretty common that when God pressed upon the heart of one of His men to take holy pen in hand and to write down, they would have pinned down the very words of God on this exact same type of plant. In other words, it's almost like she makes this boat, we would equate it to the idea of paper mache. But I tell you what it reminds me of when I read about this bulrushes and these, uh, this papyrus. It's almost as though she made a little boat out of paper or out of the Word and put this child in. Can I tell you this? One of the greatest things that you can do for your child is build a boat out of this book and safely rest your child within it. She looked at it and she said, hey, the papyrus will keep him afloat when I can't be there. The papyrus will give him a foundation when I can't put my arms underneath him. The papyrus will keep other things out when I can't be there to watch over him. And can I say, hey, listen, one of the greatest things you can do for your children is give them a biblical education, teach them the Word of God. You're not going to be there all the time. You're not going to be there forever. But you don't have to be there forever. You can build a vessel out of this book and raise your children in it. I think about how difficult but how tender and precious it must have been when she took that baby and laid it in that boat and took her arms away. And it's now no longer in her control, but she's put that child in the control of this vessel and of the hand of God. We're doing the same thing as parents. We're raising them up in the truth of the authority of God's Word because we know sooner or later we're going to have to take our hands off of them. And they better have something that will float to be in. Something that will stand in the day of need. I see that she trusted the papyrus, but then I see that she trusted the pitch. The Bible says she daubed it with slime and with pitch and put the child therein interesting to think about this pitch. You know, the Bible describes Noah as taking and sliming or sealing the outside of not this small ark of bulrushes, but the ark of gopher wood that the entirety of the world would be crammed into and would survive the flood waters of God's judgment. There, when that word is used for pitch, it's the same word that in the Old Testament is used for the idea of atonement. And the idea of something being covered or sealed that it might keep out that which would destroy it has a deep tie and connection to the idea of God's redemption and of the blood that has been shed for us. I thought to myself, here is this woman, and she's built this little boat of papyrus and placed her child in it. But she knows that it's no good if there's a bunch of holes in the papyrus. 
There's got to be something that seals it all up. And there's got to be something that keeps the water from seeping in. There's got to be something that's outside of the, mm, that's outside of the autonomy of the child, but rather is something applied to its life uh, that has something deeper and something more protective in nature. And it's a reminder that, hey, listen, we can raise them with a biblical worldview and a biblical education. They can know the Bible of God, but if they don't know the God of the Bible, it'll make no difference in their life. They've got to have the blood applied in their life. And our chief goal and purpose and focus as parents should be to see our children come to know Christ as their personal Savior. I enjoy, listen, what's one of the greatest blessings of pastoring to see these young people come to know Christ. And, you know, so many of them, I mean, you know, we, we've, we've held them when there's babies in the hospital and we've, we, we, we've rocked them when they were infants in the church and, and we've watched them grow and we've watched them develop and then to see them put their faith in Christ and trust Him, man, it's, it's a sweet, it's a precious thing. I try to actively pray with parents whose children are getting to an age that they're beginning to ask questions. And we as a church, we invest in much energy and time and money is invested into the, into the ministering to our children. Uh, because listen, if we won't win them, we, how can we hope to have a church in 10 years? It's one of the most important things that we engage in here at this church. And here's why. Because I know that I can preach to these kids until I'm blue in the face. I can even live in front of them a godly standard and a godly example. But if it is all abstract, if it's all theoretical, if it's all external, if it's all somebody else's religion, then it's not going to stand in the day of need. They've got to have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. I love what she did here. She did everything she could to make sure that the, that the boat was sound, that the boat was sealed. But then I like this last phrase. The Bible says she laid it in the flags by the river's brink. I, I told you a moment ago, I don't know what she anticipated. Some commentators suggest that she would take the child out there and leave the child. That way if the child cried, it would not be within earshot of someone else. And that this was a means and way of hiding the child. The only problem with that is twofold. One, she sets Miriam as a watch over uh, this ark of bulrushes. And then two, uh, evidently she had picked a terrible place to hide the child if she was trying to hide him because it wasn't long Pharaoh's daughter come walking right down to the riverbank. Some have suggested that the whole entirety of the goal here was to try to hope through prayer and through providence for Pharaoh's daughter to come and to have a heart for this child, to find it and to adopt it. I would tell you this, Pharaoh's <laughs> Pharaoh's daughter, her daddy was throwing river babies into the river. I think it's a far chance to believe that she anticipated that what would happen, that what did happen would happen. Rather, I think that one simple truth that Maybe too simple for us to see on the face of it, but I think it's the truth of it. I think she took that child and put him in the river, and I don't think she knew what was going to happen. I don't think she knew, uh, as far as she understood, an alligator could have come along and scooped him up. Somebody could have uh, come along and, and, and claimed him. A wave could have come along and dumped him out the side. She probably had no clue what would happen. She probably put that child in the flags of the river and simply did this. God, it's out of my hands. I'm trusting you. With this child. It's a hard truth. I'm going to go ahead and tell all of us that are parents this. Sooner or later, we're going to have to trust God with our children. And some, listen, some of y'all a little bit further down the road, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Uh, they get they get to an age and they're making their choices in life and you can do everything you can and you can pray for them and you can try to help them and you can try to be there for them, but you can't make their decisions 
for them. They've got to make their decisions on their own. Sometimes I know they break your heart into a thousand pieces. I know because I've wept with you and I've prayed with you over it and we've talked about it. And I know as a parent there's coming a day I'm going to face the exact same thing. And all these parents in this room, we better learn to trust our children to the faithful hand of God. Because sooner or later we're going to be forced to. She was wise enough when she still could have control to give God control. Most of us don't want to give God control till it's out of control. But she was smart enough to give God control when she still had control. And God honored her through it. Here's what she did. She trusted not just the papyrus and the pitch, but she trusted the providence of God. She said, I don't know what all this will mean, but I know God's faithful. I know God loves this child more than I do. And I know God has a plan for this child's life. She was mighty, not only in the potential that she saw in him and in the protection that she sought for him. But I would say this. She was mighty in the plan that she surrendered him to. It's a fascinating passage of scripture. She gives her God, her, her child over to God's protection. And God gives that child right back to her. Pharaoh's daughter goes down to the river and sees the child, has the child brought to her. She puts the child in its arms and the baby did exactly what babies are supposed to do right on cue. It began to cry. And she looked at this child and her heart moved towards it. And she said, I want to keep this child. You know, girls are always doing something to make their daddy mad. Amen. I mean, her dad. All right. That's all right. We'll get together about it later. But, but, but I, the, and so she said, you know what, you know what burned daddy up? I just kept this little Hebrew child. <laughs> and so she did. She kept this child and Miriam, who's standing over by the river bank. She sees an opportunity, and Miriam made a lot of mistakes later on in her life, but she had sense enough to know a good opportunity when she saw it. Because she runs up to this woman and she says, you know, you're going to need somebody to nurse that child. And so Pharaoh's daughter, knowing that there were a plethora of grieving mothers all over the land who had borne children that had been cast into the river, she knew there would be a lot of Hebrew wet nurses. And so she commanded Miriam to go and to find and and, and said, do you know anyone? And Miriam said, I believe I might. (laughs) And so she goes home and gets her mother and brings her back and they entrust that child to Jochebed and, and for months she gets to nurture and nurse and raise this child and gets paid for it. Some of you ladies say amen. Wouldn't that have been nice? Wouldn't it have been nice when you was up at 4 a.m. trying to burp an angry child if you'd been getting time and a half for it? Amen. More, some things more than we can hope for. Amen. And then after a few months, maybe after a year or two, we don't know how long, certainly when the child was weaned, she had to give him up all over again. She had to give up her child twice. Once to the perils of the river, and then another time to the plan of God. I think we accept that we'll have to give him up to the perils of the river. But most parents are unwilling to surrender their child to the plan of God. You don't believe that. Just wait till after camp. Kids get on fire for the Lord. And it's not every parent, thank thank the Lord. But I've seen kids come home and I've seen their parents do everything they can to dump cold water on the zeal and enthusiasm of their young people. You know why some of them, and I'm talking about church going people, but the kid comes home and says the word missionary and it just sends cold chills down a parent's arms. I remember a few years ago talking to Brother Eric that uh, that preaches at our camp ministry. Some he's a Rock of Ages missionary. 
preaching in prisons. And I don't know if you're aware of this, you may not even know, but our missionaries, the Midkiffs to Indonesia, uh, the wife is Brother Eric and, and Miss Susan's daughter. And he talked about the terror and the growth that God had developed in him. He's a missionary, and now his child's going to be a missionary in one of the most dangerous places on the earth. And he talked about how God had grown him and developed him through that process because he said when she first told me I didn't want her to go. This is a man that's a missionary. This is a man who's doing exactly what his daughter is being called to do. But he's not just a missionary, he's a daddy. And he's terrified at the prospect of it. And he had to give his child up to God all over again. Moses, Jochebed here in this passage had to give Moses up all over again. But you know, had she kept him, he couldn't have done what God called him to do. He could have been healthy, but he couldn't have been mighty. If he was going to be used of God, she had to learn to give him back to God again. And I noticed that there's three things she had to surrender him to. I would say, number one, to go to the place of God's working. The Bible says this, the child grew and she brought him unto Pharaoh's daughter. You see, the plan of God took him through the palace. And even though you imagine, I mean, you know, it must have been hard the first time when she put him in that boat. But it was probably a hundred times harder when she walked him up to the palace with that little hand in hers and said, all right, honey, this is where you're going to live now. As far as she knew, never to see him again. I would imagine Hebrew slaves didn't spend a lot of time hanging around Pharaoh's palace. But if he was going to do what God called him to do, he had to go to the place of God's will and of God's working. She gave him over again, surrendered him to go to the place of God's working, but not only that, to fulfill the purpose of God's working. Notice the next phrase, he became her son. Boy, that must have been hard. They have days of public celebrations, ceremonies, pageants, events. And little Moses, dressed in all the garb of Egypt, little Moses holding the hand of Pharaoh's daughter, little Moses being declared to be the the son of Pharaoh's daughter. And there stands Jochebed, seeing her son and her boy, probably thinking to himself, wish I could take him home, wash that makeup off of. Wish I could take him home and take those Egyptian clothes off of him, put back on him the clothes of his own people. But you see, he had to fulfill the purpose of God's working in his life. Wasn't what she would have chosen for him. But oh my, it was far better than what she ever could have done for him. She did more for Moses in surrendering him to the will of God than she did in any other moment and than she could have in all the days of her strength and service. She did more for him by letting him go to serve God and to fulfill the work of God than she could have in every meal she would have fixed, in every wound she would have bandaged, in every need she would have met. She did more for him in saying, Son, go and fulfill what God has called you to do. We think about Samuel in the Old Testament who likewise was taken by Hannah, dropped off at the temple to be the servant of the Lord. She surrendered him to go to the place of God's working to fulfill the purpose of God's working, but also to become the person of God's working. The Bible says this, that Pharaoh's daughter named, called Moses' name, called him Moses. 
And she said, because I drew him out of the water. It's interesting. When she says, because I drew him out of the water, she knows that this child was born of a Hebrew mother. She knows, and she may not know and understand all of the history of how he wound up there in that ark of bulrushes on the banks of the river, but she's not ignorant. She knows he didn't come floating up from the bottom of the river. But she names him Moses as if to suggest that his life began the moment she picked him up out of the river. In other words, whoever he was before that didn't matter. All that he mattered was who he was whenever she took him unto her own bosom. In other words, and it's interesting, I've searched for it. Probably a better Bible student than me will find it. And If you do, come embarrass me over it because I'd love to know. It would be worth the embarrassment, but I don't have a single place that I can find in my Bible where whatever name Jochebed gave to Moses is ever revealed to us. And you say, preacher, maybe she didn't name it. Maybe, possibly. She could have called him, hey, you. Amen. But probably, maybe she only even whispered it into the ears of God and of that baby. But no doubt she had some name in mind. But we never learn it. You know why? Because who he would have been don't matter. Who he became in the work and will of God is what mattered. She had to say, I can't, I can't set as my goal in life for him to be what I want him to be. I can't be selfish and claim him unto myself because he doesn't belong to me. He belongs to God. And what matters above and beyond anything is not that he become who I think he ought to be but that he become who God desires for him to be. This above all you should desire for your children, that they find and do the will of God and be what God wants them to be. They may not follow in your footsteps. <laughs> I hope my children find better footsteps than mine. I do. They, 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 may not, they may not become what you anticipate or expect them to be. They might not, might not choose the career path you anticipate. By the way, this ain't about trying to get folks into ministry or missionary work. You might want them to be a missionary, and that might not be the will of God for them. I don't know. But I do know this, that one of the greatest things you can do for your child is, listen, seeing them value and potential that God has a plan for their life. They're worth it. They're worth it. I know at 3 a.m. it don't seem like they're worth it. I know, I know when, when, listen, when everybody in the house has been sick three times in a row and they keep just passing it around like a hot potato, I know it don't seem worth it. I, I know when you're trying to balance the checkbook and, and there just ain't enough bill for the amount of month that you've got, I know it don't seem worth it, but I'm telling you it's worth it. It's worth it to raise them up. It's worth it to put the effort and the time in. It's worth it. The world is shaped by those that are shaping young people. The potential that she saw, the protection that she sought. Hey, build a vessel out of this book and put your kids in it. Preacher, I don't want them to be in a bubble. I don't either, but I do want them to be in a boat. I understand we ain't going to keep everything out, but hey, we better learn how to keep the floodwaters out if we want them to live. Uh, put them in that boat. Have the, 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 the pitch, the slime, the sealant, the blood has to be applied to their life. Trust them to the providence of God and then take them and put them right in God's hands and say, Lord, I don't know what is the best course for every matter of their life, but I know, God, you have a plan and I'm willing to trust you with them.
Let's bow together tonight as a musician comes to play. I want to give you an opportunity to meet the Lord in the altar. I understand what day it is. I understand the type of messages we've preached. Here's what I want to ask you to do. God's dealt with you. I want you, I want you to meet Him in the altar. He might have dealt with you about something that didn't have nothing to do with anything I preached on. Wouldn't be unlike the Lord to do that. He loves you enough to deal with you even when it ain't got nothing to do with the preacher's sermon. So he might have dealt with you about something entirely separate. Or he might have dealt with you about the influence and impact you can have on your kids, your grandkids, the people in your life that God has entrusted you with. Your heart might be heavy for one that you see imperiled and in the dangers that this world has. Say, preacher, what can I do? Well, the best thing you can do is just open your heart to the Lord and commit them to the Lord's care. Hey, God's got a plan and a purpose. Best thing we can do is put them in God's hands. He never fails. Father, bless this invitation. May it glorify the Lord Jesus. We ask it in His name.